Good morning, everyone. So you got your little red cards there. Fill them out. You can hand them in to me. You can drop them off in the office. You can leave them at the back welcome kiosk. It can be your favorite sermon, the hardest scripture you can think of, the sermon that you need to hear, sermon you've never heard before. Obadiah is the least preached on book of the Bible, but if you put in Obadiah, I'll preach on Obadiah. So it is an all-request summer, 10 sermons that you tell me that you want to hear, and uh, I'll do my best. And you need to get them in in the next week or so because I actually have to prepare them. So you can't wait until Friday and tell me what you want to hear on Sunday. Uh, that wouldn't work. So yeah, so that'll be, that'll be interesting uh, to go through that. It's it's exciting to see what people want to hear. It's exciting to see what people are searching for in the Word of God. And it's exciting uh, to preach what people are searching for and want to hear in the Word of God. So your favorite, your most difficult, your most needed, or maybe you're just trying to trip me up, whatever. I won't, I won't judge your motives. Uh, this morning we're continuing. Uh, we have two more sermons, one more after this. Uh, on this six-week series that I call the Easter series, which is why we still have the crosses up here, because uh, Palm Sunday and Easter are just not enough, really, to talk about the cross. And, um, and so we have been looking uh, over this series at the things that Jesus accomplished on the cross, or why did Jesus have to die? Uh, what was the purpose of his death, and what did he accomplish in it? And uh, it's been four sermons now, and we're really just sort of scratching the surface, just kind of skimming over the things that Christ accomplished on the cross. And um, we do have one more sermon, but we never really leave Easter. We never really leave the cross. Every sermon uh, is, has the cross behind it. And the cross is at the center of our faith. The cross is um, the center of God's love. It's at the center of God's justice. It's at the center of God's wisdom. It's at the center of God's grace. And it's at the center of Jesus' accomplishments for us. And the cross is at the center of everything. And so we can spend six sermons on it or we can spend 600 sermons on it. We never really leave the cross because it's at the center of our faith. It's at the center of history. It's at the center of the purposes of God. And so what I want to do and the purpose of this series, the purpose of this sermon, but the purpose of this series as a whole, so you know what I'm trying to do up here, is I am trying to build up in us as Christians and as non-Christians as well, a deep and a fervent appreciation of the cross. And and I I read that word appreciation, and I thought that is too light of a word, appreciation. (laughs) We don't just appreciate the cross. And I was thinking about what it could be, and and it's a cherishing of the cross. I'm trying to build up in us a cherishing of the cross, an understanding, a realization of the inestimable value of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. And so if we come out of this series, if we come out of today with an understanding, a deeper cherishing of the cross, then we've accomplished something. And so just to to consider some of those things, I won't do the big review I did last week to catch you up, but we looked at Christ dying on the cross and it was to glorify the Father. And I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. You remember we talked about that. And then to demonstrate the perfect justice of God in that the world was judged And then to demonstrate the perfect love of God in that the judgment of the world was borne by his own son. And and to accomplish the perfect faithfulness of God in his resurrection, that God is faithful to his promise to prove that he is faithful to resurrect us as he resurrected his son. 
And Christ died to cast out Satan and to draw all people to himself through the gospel. And then to make us a people, last week we looked at, he died, he gave himself to bring into his possession a people who are zealous for good works. But in addition to that, as we continue on in this look at the cross and sort of the ripple effect of the expanding effect of God and of Christ on the cross, in addition to that, he's not left us abandoned to try to accomplish these things on our own. But Jesus has gone to the cross in order to give us help here on earth and help in heaven. So today what we're looking at is that Jesus, our Messiah, went through the cross in order to leave us a counselor on earth and to become our advocate in heaven. These two things he accomplished through the cross. And so if you think about it from the disciples' point of view, near the end of Jesus' ministry, if you turn to John uh, chapter 14, there's a few verses there in 14 and 16. If you want to follow along, I'm going to go through them a little bit. But if you think about the disciples, from the point of view of the disciples, near the end of Jesus' ministry, they're finally starting to hear what Jesus has been telling them all along. They're finally starting to listen that Jesus has been telling them, I need to go, I need to die. Like, this is coming to an end. You know, the road show is over. You know, it was a three-year ministry, and then I die and I go. And it's finally starting to sink into the disciples that this is going to happen. And in, in chapters 14, 15, and 16, while he's explaining this to the disciples, he's preparing them for what's going to happen. And the disciples, you'll see in there, they, they, they're asking questions like, we still need your teaching. You know, we still need your wisdom. We still need your miracles. We, we need your gifts. We need your forgiveness. We need your intercession for us. What are we going to do, Jesus, when you're gone? You can't leave us. How are we going to go on without you? And where are you going? And what are you going to be doing? And in John 14, Jesus is preparing the disciples for the fact that he's leaving. And he answers them and he says, If you love me, in verse 15 there, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So Jesus says, it's okay, I'm, gonna, I'm going, but I'm going to ask the Father to give you a helper, and he's never going to leave you. And then later on, he says, these things I've spoken to you while I am still with you, in verse 25. But in verse 26, he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus says to the disciples, yeah, I'm going, but another is coming. In John 16, a couple chapters later on, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus says, it's actually better that I go, because if I don't go away, the helper won't come to you. But if I go, then I'll send him to you. And so Jesus says to the disciples, Look, I am going through the cross to heaven. I'm leaving. But if I don't go, then this helper, this Holy Spirit can't come to you. This is the way it's set up. It's set up that I go and the Holy Spirit comes and he will comfort you and he will counsel you and he will bring my commandments to your remembrance, all these things that I've said to you. And so it's actually better for you that I go. Trust me, it is way better that I go than I stay. For the cross, for everything else, but also because the Holy Spirit can come. And so the first thing that Jesus goes through the cross for is in order that the Holy Spirit can come. And all through these verses, in John chapters 14 to 16, the disciples are asking these desperate questions about Jesus, where he's going and what he's doing. And Jesus keeps repeating through these chapters, over and over and over again, at least four or five times, he says, don't be distressed, don't worry, don't let your hearts be filled with sadness. Jesus is reassuring them in in 14, 18 there, one of my favorite verses, he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And so the first thing that we're looking at here is that Jesus goes through the cross in order that the Holy Spirit can come and be our helper. 
And so that's accomplished on the cross. We're not left alone as the people of Jesus on earth. When, when Jesus rose from death in the grave and he ascended into heaven, then the Holy Spirit was left with us who believe in him. And the cross is what put that into motion. So when we're meditating on the cross, when we're thinking about the cross that's at the center of our faith, among all the things that Jesus did, and 50, 100, 1,000 things that he accomplished on the cross, one of the things that the cross put into motion was this exchange. That yes, Jesus went to heaven, left the disciples behind, left his people behind in a way, but the cross put into motion this exchange, that the Holy Spirit could come. And so when we think about what God accomplished through the cross, through Jesus, he accomplished this sending of the Holy Spirit. Christ could ascend into heaven as the first of all creation in his new physical, eternal resurrection body, and the Holy Spirit could descend to dwell in the followers of Christ, where the Holy Spirit performs innumerable things for us. And the Holy Spirit never functioned this way before. This is what we have to understand. This is why the cross is so central, because the Holy Spirit never behaved this way before. Okay, in the Holy Spirit, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit could come and go. You know, he would descend for a time on a person and then he'd leave again. You know, and you think of all the examples of the Spirit descending on people in the Old Testament and then leaving again. One of, you know, one of the most amazing and, and the saddest at the same time is Samson. The Holy Spirit was upon Samson from the time he was very, very young and it gave, he gave Samson his incredible strength and his incredible commitment to the people as a judge of Israel. But eventually a time came that the Spirit departed from Samson and it says Samson didn't even know it, that the Spirit had left him. Sad, sad verse. But that's, that's the way the Holy Spirit worked. The Holy Spirit would descend and then, and then rise again. But through the cross, Jesus changed everything. The Spirit doesn't come and go on God's people. The Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. He sets up shop. Right? He latches on and he becomes our helper and our counselor and our advisor. And the word here in the Greek is paraclete. Jesus says literally, I'm sending the paraclete to be with you, the helper, the advisor, the counselor. And just a short version of paraclete and, and what the Holy Spirit does with us when he comes and Jesus has sent him to us to help us as Christians. He's a helper that's with us forever, Jesus says in John 14, 16. He says he will teach and cause us to remember in John 14, 26. And the Spirit convicts the world, world of sin and righteousness and judgment in John 16. And the Spirit guides us in all truth, John 16. And he regenerates us, John 3 and Titus 3. And the Spirit glorifies and testifies of Christ, John 15 and John 16. And the Spirit reveals Christ to us and in us, John 16. And the Holy Spirit leads us, Romans 8, 14 and Galatians 5, 18. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 1 Peter 1, 2. The Holy Spirit empowers us Luke 4 14 and Romans 15 19 the Holy Spirit anoints us for ministry Luke 4 18 the Spirit washes and renews us Titus 3 5 the Spirit brings liberty 2 Corinthians 3 17 he transforms us into the image of Christ 2 Corinthians 3 18 the Spirit enables us to obey the truth 1 Peter 1 the Spirit gives us joy 1 Thessalonians 1 6 the Spirit comforts us Acts 9 31 the Spirit knows and reveals the mind of God, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 11. He says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit teaches us everything, even the depths of God. And he helps in our weakness and our prayers, Romans 8, 26 to 27. And I could go on and on and on. Is it not a good thing that we got the Holy Spirit when Jesus went through the cross? Amen. Amen. The Holy there's a lit, there's like... 50, 60 things. You can just go through the New Testament. You can find over 50 things that the Holy Spirit does for us. You could just go on and on and on. 
Romans 8.26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us for groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Or Galatians 4.6, and because you are sons of God, has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so when we think of the cross... Of Christ, We have to grasp that it was through the cross that the Spirit was granted to us. Without the cross, there would be no grace. And without grace, we would be under law. And with the law, there would be no Spirit. And all of these blessings would be so distant from us. But it's through the cross of Christ, as we learn to appreciate and cherish what Christ accomplished on the cross, that we realize that he sent his Spirit to dwell in us. And it's through his Spirit that we are able to pray, as we've been sort of focusing on this idea that Jesus sent the Spirit in order to intercede for us so that we could have this communion with God, that we would not be left alone, but we would be counseled and encouraged and helped, especially in prayer, to intercede with God for us. And so because Christ went through the cross and was glorified into heaven to the Father, we receive the Spirit. And Acts 2.32 actually explains this very clearly. It says, This Jesus that God raised up, and of all that we are witness, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured this out on us that you have seen, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And so there is this transaction that is taking place. Okay, Jesus died so that we could have the Holy Spirit as a helper and as a counselor, our paraclete here on earth. And so as Christians, we just, we cherish that and we think, thank you, Jesus, for the cross, for all the other things you've done, but that the cross enabled you to ascend into heaven and us to receive the Holy Spirit. That's point one. Point two, it's only a two-point sermon. Point two, Christ died and was resurrected to also become our advocate in heaven. So what's going on on the other end? The Holy Spirit has come and dwells among us and does all these 50 or 60 things that we could just you know, spend another whole series on, uh, just on what the Holy Spirit does. But not only did he die to send us the Holy Spirit, and that's fine and that comforts us here, but when our actions and our prayers and our lives rise up to God, what happens in heaven? What's going on up there when the Holy Spirit stuff is going on down here? Romans 8.31, the second point, sorry, is that Christ died and was resurrected also to become our advocate in heaven. Romans 8.31.34 says, What then shall we say to these things? Is If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's what Christ accomplished through the cross. He had to go. He had to say to the disciples, look, it's better that I go because you get the Holy Spirit and not only that, but I get to sit at the right hand of the Father and intercede for you so that when these prayers are coming up and your lives are coming up and your actions and your works are rising up to the Father, they come through me. God did not spare his own son. Jesus is the one who died. And more than just died, was raised. And now he sits at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. He did not leave us as orphans here on earth, but he also doesn't leave us unrepresented in heaven. 
We need power to live a zealous life of good works. And we have the Spirit for that power. And we need to know the mind and the will of God. And we have the Holy Spirit to reveal to us the mind and the will of God to do that. And we need help with our prayers. And the Spirit helps us with our prayers. And then on the other end of the line in heaven, when our prayers and the works of our lives and they rise up to God, God is looking at those prayers and he's looking at the living sacrifice of our lives. And are they righteous works? Are they righteous prayers? As James says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. Who is that righteousness? Who is it that makes our prayers righteous, that makes our works righteous, that make our living sacrifice righteous? It's Christ interceding for those things on the right hand of God. Or looking at it the other way, when we lose our zeal, when our behavior falters, when our flesh rises up within us and we no longer please God at all, when we sin and we turn from God's ways and the Holy Spirit here on earth convicts us of that sin, he's doing his job, and we confess our sins under that conviction, in heaven we have an advocate for the sin that we have done. First John 2, 1. John is writing near the end of his life in this letter to the churches and he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He doesn't want anybody to sin, but he knows we will. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. It's a great Christian preacher, Charles Hodge. He's a Presbyterian theologian, lived about 100 years ago. And he says it this way, The relationship of Christ to his people is that of a legal advocate to a client. The former personates the latter. The lawyer stands in the client's place. It is, while it lasts, the most intimate of relationships. You may not even have to appear in court. You are not heard. You are not regarded. You are lost in your advocate, who for the time being is your representative. It's the advocate, not you, who is seen. The advocate, not you, is heard. The advocate, not you, is regarded. And this is the language that John is using here in relation to Christ. That he is interceding on our behalf. That he is our advocate. And what's really interesting here is that the Greek word used for Jesus is the exact same as given for the Holy Spirit. It's paraclete again. That Christ died to leave us a paraclete on earth and to become our paraclete in heaven. That he is our counselor on earth and he is our counselor in heaven. He is our champion, our advocate. Christ has given us the Holy Spirit as a paraclete and is himself a paraclete in heaven. But what does it all mean? So I throw out that word paraclete and advocate, and you're thinking, okay, what, what does that mean? Like, what, are you, what is Jesus actually doing as our advocate? What is taking place? And as I mentioned, the sort of legal nuance of the word paraclete in the Greek here is one who pleads another's case. Through the cross, Christ has accomplished this, that he can sit at the right hand of God and plead our case. Jesus is interceding. He is talking. He's making your case. He's our lawyer in heaven. He's speaking on your behalf. That's what we hire lawyers to do, is to talk, because lawyers know how to talk, and they know the law. They know how to make a case, and the lawyer knows the justice system, and he knows what to say. And so the Bible gives us this picture of Jesus in heaven. This is what we have to picture. And he gives it, the Bible gives it to us in a few different ways. In the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus stands as our high priest before the altar. Same thing, as our mediator. That Jesus is standing before the throne on our behalf, which is an awesome reality. It's amazing to think of Jesus standing there as our representative on our behalf, 
But I just want to touch on this because there's a way in which this really awesome reality, the way we might think of it, that it might be a little bit less awesome. This is what Jesus is not doing. It's important we understand this from the text. And if you're like me, if you were like me or or, or like me and you think of Jesus as a lawyer or even a high priest speaking on your behalf, you may be thinking of it like this, that what Jesus is saying to the God is that for my sake, Father, you know, give Paul another chance. I know he sinned again, but let's give him a break. Don't, you know, don't wipe him out. Do it for me. I'm your son. Show mercy. Right? And God says, well, okay, not this time. I'll be merciful. And we sort of maybe think that Jesus is our advocate that way, that that's how he's pleading. And if Jesus is an advocate like that, then, then what happens when the father finally says, forget it. I'm done. You're not persuasive anymore. You know, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to forbear anymore. You know, what happens when Jesus isn't persuasive or, or not merciful enough? It just doesn't happen. And, and, the, and so you're always sort of on the edge of your seat all the time waiting for it to fail. But First John doesn't say that Jesus is our advocate is merciful. And it doesn't say that Jesus, our advocate, is persuasive. It says Jesus, the righteous one. And First John tells us that the case that Jesus is really making is based on his righteousness and justice. And this is how Jesus, our advocate, actually is totally awesome. Because a really good lawyer isn't just persuasive. A really good lawyer doesn't just play on the emotions of his audience. A winning lawyer has a solid case. He actually has the law on his side. And so the amazing thing about Jesus, our advocate, is that Jesus is not not pleading for the mercy of the court. He's not pleading for our forgiveness. He's not asking for mercy. Jesus is in front of the Father, reminding the Father of what the law is. His advocacy, his whole role in this was the Father's idea. So Jesus isn't trying to convince God the Father of this. It was God's idea. But there's this dynamic going on between the two of them that the Father has set Jesus as our representative in order to reconcile him. We read in 2 Corinthians 5 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And so Jesus stands before the Father, before the justice of God, and he relentlessly and he continuously says something like this. He says, Father... Yes, Paul did do it again, but I've lived the life he should have lived. And I've died the death that he is supposed to die. I've taken the place of his death for his sins. And I am his advocate. He's lost in me. When you look at him, you have to see me. And I'm not asking for your mercy. I'm asking for your justice. Because he's already justified. Because Jesus paid all the price already. It's already done. And so Jesus has the law on his side. He's an eternity, an, in, an attorney. And in his briefcase, he has one thing in his briefcase, and it's the cross. He just has to lay out the case. And he shows the Father what he suffered, why we are to be considered righteous. And what he pleads and makes great before the Father is his own death, which fulfills everything that's demanded. But you say... You know, it's God's love and it's his mercy and his grace. And yes, it is the love and mercy of God and grace of God that came up with this plan. But what I, what I want us to focus in on, laser focus, that what is happening in the throne room of God right at this moment is justice. The mercy and the grace has all been taken care of. It says that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we, can, if we confess our sins, it doesn't say he's faithful and merciful to forgive our sins. It doesn't say he is faithful and loving. He is faithful and loving, and he is merciful, but he's not saying that. He's saying, 
our justice, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. So Jesus, our advocate, is standing before God the Father with the whole law and all of justice on his side. And he has his case made in the cross. And he is our advocate. Jesus demands justice, and there's no greater case than that. And that's what we worry about, right? We worry about the justice of God, right? You think of Lady Justice, you know, she's blindfolded and she's holding up the scales, right? And you think about justice and you think you've got all the virtue and all the righteousness and everything that God is on one side of the scale. And on the other side of the scale is me. And I am never going to outweigh the virtue and the justice of God. Never. It doesn't matter what I do, I can never outweigh that scale. But what God does is he put Jesus on our side of the scale, Right? So, the virtue and the righteousness and the justice is all taken care of through Jesus. And justice is done. And mercy is done as well. And so, through Christ, our advocate, we are, put, we are counted as righteous and put in a right standing with God. And he gives us his own righteousness. We don't just lose our sin, and we also gain the righteousness of God. And that's what Jesus is our advocate for with the Father. Now, how does this change your life? Remember, I said at the beginning, I'm just trying with this series, I'm trying with this sermon for us to just get a deeper appreciation as Christians why the cross is at the center of our faith, why the cross should be at the center of our life, why the cross should be at the center of our devotions, why the cross should be at the center of our zeal and our passion for our faith. Because of all that Christ has done on the cross to leave us the Holy Spirit and to become our advocate and just to gain a deeper appreciation of that. And so what we're trying to do here when we look into what Jesus has accomplished is to build up in ourselves a zeal for Jesus, to build up in ourselves a knowledge of Jesus that's far surpassing anything else this world has to offer. That when you consider the cross and you consider what Jesus does, has done and you look at anything else that the world can offer you, it just pales in comparison. And it draws you deeper and deeper into your love for Jesus. He outshines all the false religions, and he's better than any other substitute. And as Christians, our faith is grounded on the centrality of the cross and what Jesus accomplishes there. If we're lacking in our zeal, if we are drifting in our faith, if we are despondent or like the disciples beginning to despair about what is going on in our life and what happens if Jesus is go, If we are in despair over our sin, it's because we haven't grasped what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. We don't have to despair. We don't have to be despondent. We don't have to lose our zeal. We don't have to drift in our faith. We need to just simply look upon the cross and remember what Christ has done. He hasn't left us alone. He didn't take off to heaven to leave us as orphans. Through the cross, he gave us the Holy Spirit as our helper and our counselor and all those other things I talked about. Read about them. He strives with us and prays with us and seals our salvation. And then on the other end, he's also in heaven as our paraclete, as our advocate. And through the cross, he entered into heaven to stand in our stead before the throne of God, to constantly remind God of his justice and to put the law on our side. And so we have no reason to despair. We have no reason to lose hope or to falter in our zeal or to be distracted by anything else from this world because Jesus has done it all for us. And we just have to behold his glory in these things and cherish him more to keep the cross at the center of our faith and marvel at it and treasure what Christ has accomplished in it and let that marveling and that cherishing transform you. 
Now let me close with this before the worship team comes up. Everything that I just said there is only true if you actually have faith in Jesus. That's true of us as Christians, that we have the Holy Spirit and we have this advocate. But it's only true if you're saved. Jesus said to the disciples, if you obey my commands, I will ask the Father to send you a helper. And John says, if you confess your sins, you have an advocate with the Father. And in Romans 10.9, the Apostle Paul explains, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so all this is only true. If, if what I've said, you're thinking, I, I need that advocate because I am not going to stand before a holy God and not instantly be turned into ash. And none of us would stand before a holy God and not instantly be turned to ash. But this Holy Spirit help, this advocate in heaven, is only true if you believe. If you don't believe, you don't get any help here on earth. You know, your life, you're just doing it in your own flesh. It's hard. You know, and you can't be zealous for God, and you can't have faith, and you can't pursue God without the Holy Spirit. And when your life, and your prayers, and your requests, and, and, you know, your hopes, and, you know, your life and your works go up to God in heaven, Jesus isn't your advocate. You're just under the wrath of God. God's just, yeah, you're the sinners that I condemned. I don't know you. But with faith in God, you get the Holy Spirit and you get the advocate of Jesus Christ. And you get the eternal life that is promised and faithfully delivered by God through his Son on the cross. So let's just pray. Father God, for many of us as believers here, We need to look to your cross to recover zeal. We need to look to your cross to recover a passion for your son, to fall more deeply in love with Jesus. We need to look at what Christ accomplished here in order to push back the despair that we may be starting to feel or even just the tiredness or the hopelessness. And Lord, forgive us when we feel hopeless or despair, when we can just look on the cross and see what Christ has accomplished and just give joy and praise and glory for our advocate in heaven and our helper here on earth, the Holy Spirit. And so as Christians, we just pray right now, Lord, that I would just pray that people would just cherish you more, love you more deeply, be transformed by this truth. We need to feel right things towards you, God, but we need to know right things about you before we can feel the right things. And so I pray that just knowing this will change how we feel and reward and enrich our Christian life. But Father, for anyone here who does not have the Holy Spirit and has no advocate in heaven and is just out at the end of the plank, all alone, lost in their sin, under your wrath, your righteous, just, and merciful wrath because of who you are, Father, I pray that they would see that they need only ask and believe. That your salvation is open to anyone. You will not turn anyone away who asks for your salvation. And that the Holy Spirit is just waiting to be their counselor and their helper. And that Christ is just waiting to become their advocate. And so, Father, I would pray that they would lay down whatever rebellion, whatever doubt, whatever sword, whatever whatever it is that they are fighting with you about to hold back from becoming your child. I pray that they would lay it down right now, become your, your son or your daughter. And they could just pray that they trust your son and his death, and his sacrifice that accomplished all of this for them. 
and he wants to love them in eternity. Father God, as the worship team comes, I just pray that if anybody has any need to pray or has prayed that prayer of salvation, they come talk to me or another elder afterwards. There'll be prayer up here at the cross, and we'd love to pray with you. Father, help us as a people to cherish your son and what he accomplished on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.